Last week, we looked at the tradition of gift giving, and today, if you haven't figured it out already, we are looking at Santa Claus. Santa Claus, yes. So each week, we're looking at these traditions, which a lot of people celebrate, even if you uh, don't personally. A lot of people do in our culture. Um, And we've been asking the question, how do they help us understand the real story of Christmas, and how does the real story of Christmas help us celebrate these traditions from a different perspective? So today, as we look at Santa Claus, we're not going to only look at some of the origins of good old Saint Nick, but ultimately consider the Christmas story through the eyes of Santa Claus. And uh, and hopefully um, uh, that goes over well. We'll see. But what's interesting about Santa Claus is um, his origin is rather extensive. I mean, he goes all the way back to 300 A.D., um, over 1,500 years ago. And while his origin mostly started in various parts of northern, uh, northern Europe, uh, especially kind of took birth in Germany, and, and if you know anything about, uh, if you've ever, I met someone who went to a German uh, Christmas museum, and they basically claim all Christmas traditions started in Germany, so, which is probably true. But now they've spread to all over the world, and Santa Claus is celebrated in Mexico and China and Russia and even in some parts of Africa, although not in every part of Africa. When I was researching this in Liberia, this is just a, an extra aside, in Liberia, you might not hear about uh, Santa Claus, but you might hear about old man Beka, which I'm probably not pronouncing that correctly, but he's a devil in the country, uh, known as this country devil, and around Christmas time, instead of going around delivering gifts, he goes around in the streets begging for gifts. So it's just like sort of the opposite of our tradition, Um, and so for all of those, uh, you can be thankful we have Santa Claus instead of the devil. But when you dig up these origins of Santa, even though it's spread all over the world, they originated in Europe, and so I'm going to show you, um, okay, give you a little, I, I got to say something. I wasn't, this is in my notes, but so in our previous church um, where me and Alyssa were at before we came to Columbus to launch this one, there was this really strange tradition that got way out of hand and it was kind of stupid, but it started with this idea that sometimes we can talk about things that are kind of boring, but if we pretend like they're exciting, then they're fun. And one of those things is maps. And so in this particular church that we came out of, whenever we were going to show a map, the entire congregation would hoop and holler and go, yeah, you know, like, woohoo! All right, so I wonder if you would just amuse me, like, just, and go along with it. So today, in order to figure out the story of Santa Claus, I'm going to show you all a map. Yeah, 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 yeah. all right, all right. So here we go. Um, the first character in Christmas originated in the country of uh, what is now Turkey and is uh, St. Nicholas. Now, St. Nicholas is an actual historic figure. He was a leader in the early church. He was a bishop, um, and he was serving in the area around Turkey, um, what is now Turkey. And he was known for giving gifts, especially to the poor, even by putting coins in shoes that were left out for him, which has probably kind of evolved over time to become this idea of stockings, if you ever wondered. If you ever really thought about how weird it is that we hang socks up on a mantle, kind of originated from there. Now, he did a lot of other things in the early church, and we're going to actually look at some of those in just a second. But for now, um, the name Santa Claus actually comes from the name St. Nicholas. So... In Holland, the Dutch translation, this is probably more than you wanted to know, but the Dutch translation of St. Nicholas is St. Nicholas, 
and that was shortened to Santa Claus. And then when the Dutch came to America, they kind of just transliterated it again, and that's where we get Santa Claus. So that's the iteration. So you learn something new today. So Santa Claus is just kind of a couple renditions away from St. Nicholas. Um, but uh, that's uh, uh, progress, and that's, that's where we bring it. So the next character um, that we look at is this um, guy in Germany, known as the Christkindle. Now, if you're familiar with the Christmas history, you'll, you'll know this. So during the Reformation, Martin Luther decided he wanted to reclaim and reinvigorate the church around Christmas time, and so he decided that the Christ child, Christkindle, would be the one who delivers gifts. Now, what's interesting is over time, that kind of part was left, and now Christkindle is typically just this fairy, angelic being. And in Germany to this day, Christmas kicks off by a, a young girl, usually in her teens, who plays the Christkindle, and um, the, the celebration of Christmas begins with that. Now, to go along with Christkindle, though, you have this character known as the Krampus. And um, so the Christ child would bring gifts to the children who were good, just good old-fashioned work-based theology. And the Krampus, who was kind of a, a, a devil of sorts, would punish the kids who were disobedient, which is probably sort of the origin of that naughty and nice list, right? Now, this is actually one of the nicer photos that I found. Um, I'm not going to show you some of the other old photos or paintings of Krampus. Actually, yeah, I will. Here's another one. So this one is absolutely just um, terrifying. Yeah, that's like a real... <laughs> So this is, uh, so if your naughty and nice list isn't working um, at home, you can introduce your children to Krampus. That's what the Germans do. Okay, moving on. Now, if you go further north into Scandinavian countries, their gifts are delivered by Santa Claus, but by an elf, which is, once again, you know, we get out of the dark into the light. It's very cute. And I'm not even going to try to pronounce his name because um, I don't know how but the elf delivers presents in Scandinavia. Next up, we have, um, in England, they have what they call Father Christmas. Now, this is starting to look a little bit more like our Santa Claus, right? And Father Christmas really is just this big personification of the Christmas season. And he would have children sit on his lap and ask what they want. And he, Father Christmas was just kind of like this, this overarching theme of what it meant to be Christmas. So um, he was this, uh, all of that then, brings us to good old Santa Claus here in the States. And adapting from all of these traditions, melting them together and adjusting them, we get the story of Santa Claus, a jolly old man who brings presents and separates the naughty from the nice and is, has elves who help him, just generally also a personification of the season, um, Santa Claus. But when you peel back all of these layers, we're left with this one person who goes back the furthest, good old Saint Nicholas, a leader in the early church. And that's who we want to spend some time today to look at, because Saint Nicholas actually has some things to offer the real Christmas story when we begin to study his story. And here's the great thing about Saint Nick. He's not only just a legendary character, he actually lived. And because the early church during this time really celebrated their bishops, his remains were preserved. And uh, to this day, we know where they're at. And in uh, early 1950s, they uncovered them. They did some x-rays. And then, um, have any of you guys seen the TV show Bones? Yeah, so a few of you. You know, like Angela, I think, is the name in that, in that show. And she'll actually take the remains of, of, a, of a person and then 
use the bone structure to, to develop the face. Did you know that technology actually exists? And they did it with St. Nicholas. So I know you've all been dying to know what the real Santa Claus actually looks like. Do you want to see him? A lot of anticipation in the room. Well, here it is. He actually looks similar to this guy. This is the digital recreation, you know? And honestly, it doesn't disappoint, you know? I mean, he doesn't look super happy in this photo, but like, I could see how he might be jolly at some point. Um, so I don't know if that's what you expected, but that is probably a pretty close representation of what the original St. Nicholas looked like. Now, St. Nicholas is not only known for being generous and giving gifts to the poor or to those who are in need. According to legend, he was part of something in the early church that is um, far more significant and substantial than just gift giving, something that has forever shaped the way we as Christians understand Jesus, understand the Gospels, and even understand the Christmas story. So back in 300 AD, um, leaders in the church decided to get together to decide on a number of things that they were discussing. And I'm going to share with you a little bit of history. I do this sometimes. I don't do this all the time. Um, I'm hesitant when I get into too much history or theology because I'm afraid I'm going to bore some people. But uh, um, I don't got anything else to give you, so we're going to do it anyways. And I hope that you'll pay attention. And for those history buffs, hopefully you'll find it interesting. And those who don't, I think God will still have something to say to you. But the early church gathered around 300 AD to talk about really important issues because they had the scriptures, but they had to interpret them and understand them. So they gathered in this old city, this ancient city in modern-day Turkey called Nicaea. And here's the thing. According to legend, St. Nicholas was at this council known as the Council of Nicaea. And it's in this council, if you're not familiar with all about the Christian faith, that the Nicene Creed was established. So it's in this council that one of the things they're debating is they're debating the nature of Jesus. In other words, was Jesus human or divine or both? And if he was divine, was he fully divine or was he just sort of divine? Was he like the same level of divine as the, God the Father or was he less divine than the Father? Was, in other words, was Jesus God or was Jesus just sort of God, maybe special? And they're, they're really trying to figure this out and studying the scriptures and not everyone agrees. Now, most people at this point, and, and 2,000 years later, we still believe this, that Jesus was fully God. But there were a few who didn't believe that. And one of them was this guy by the name of Arius. He was making the case that Jesus was sort of God, but not fully God. Well, here's where St. Nicholas comes into the story. St. Nicholas, yes, Santa Claus, is at the council and Arius is up there, and he's making his speech about who Jesus is. And St. Nicholas gets so frustrated, legend has it, that he gets up, he walks across the room, and he punches Arius in the face. <laughs> and then he goes to prison for it, because you're not supposed to punch bishops, I guess. And he repents of it, because it's actually not a very godly thing to do. And uh, But... Now, whether this actually happened or not, it's, it's hard to say, but what it does represent is in the early church, there was a lot of discussion and debate around this. What's the nature of the Trinity? How does this all work together? 
In other words, we know of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Is it, is it, and I heard this recently from my friend Jack, is it one plus one plus one means there's three gods or is it one times one times one equals one God? How, how, and how do we even begin to understand this? And is Jesus both fully God and fully human? So sometimes around this season, you might hear, even Christians debate this, do you believe in Santa Claus? Well, today... I want to spend some time thinking about this question. What did Santa Claus believe? And the short answer is this, according to legend anyways, Santa Claus, good old Saint Nick, believed that Jesus was 100% God. He believed it very strongly and very adamantly. And if that's true, then the Christmas story becomes far more than just a cute story about a king who was born or about how light is entering the world. It becomes far more profound. It would mean that God was born on Christmas Day, that God entered this world on Christmas Day. So where did Santa Claus get this idea? Where did St. Nick and the early church come up with this? Why was he so adamant about it? That's a really interesting question, actually. Over the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about the story of Christmas, and we've read the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, and that's where the story of Christmas takes place, in the Gospels of Matthew and in the Gospel of Luke. And we haven't covered the whole story, but we've covered a number of the major themes. And so two weeks ago, we talked about how Jesus is light. And then last week, we talked about Jesus is king. And it's really that second one that is the prominent theme in the Christmas story. If you haven't read the Christmas stories in Matthew and Luke before, with that perspective, I I encourage you, read them. Because that's what it's all about, that Jesus is king. Now, it's a bit harder in the Christmas story, in these Christmas stories, in Matthew and Luke, to see how Jesus might be God. In fact, it's not really a major focus of Matthew and Luke at all. So there are essentially four accounts of Jesus's life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You'll find these in the second half of your Bibles. It's the beginning of what we call the New Testament, and they are known as the Gospels, which means good news because they share the good news of Jesus coming and living amongst us. So the first three are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And these three are very similar. So we call them, uh, scholars would call them synoptic gospels because synoptic means summary and it feels like these stories are pulling from similar types of stories, similar summaries. Um, And they include a lot of the same stories written in the same way with the same purposes. The main theme of the synoptic gospels, this is very useful if you're going to spend any time studying the gospels. The main theme is about Jesus being a king and Jesus coming to establish his kingdom. Over and over again, these gospels capture stories of Jesus talking about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven and how we should follow Jesus and help establish his kingdom right here, right now. In fact, Matthew, in Matthew, the word kingdom is found 54 times. In Mark, a shorter book, it's found 19 times. And in Luke, it's found 43 times. The last gospel, though, the gospel of John is different. The word kingdom is only found three times. And in those three times, it hardly even describes what the kingdom of God should look like. So considering this alone, the gospel of John is different. 
It's a different story. It's a different take on Jesus's story, which actually makes sense because the gospel was written last. The gospel of John was the last one to be written and after all the others had been written. So it's almost like this. John would have had a copy of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, or at least some parts of it. And they would, the gospel, the John would have been familiar with these stories. And it's almost like he says to himself, these stories are fine. They're good accounts. They're trustworthy accounts of Jesus's life, but they're not telling the whole story. That They're missing something. There, there, there needs to be one more account from a slightly different perspective in order to really understand who this Jesus is. And so that's what John does. Saint, uh, John uh, doesn't tell the same stories. In fact, he doesn't even tell how Jesus is born. He leaves the Christmas story out altogether. He starts in a different way. And how he starts is very important. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to turn to the Gospel of John, starting with chapter 1, verse 1. Whereas Matthew and Luke begin with the Christmas story and Jesus' genealogy, John begins a little further back. So let's look at it. John 1, 1. You can follow along on your phone, or if you brought a Bible, or if you have the Bible app, YouVersion Bible app, we should have an event posted. It says this. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I want to pause there. In fact, today, I want to spend uh, most of my time on this one verse. And I don't know that I've ever spent an entire teaching on one verse before, but this passage and this verse is considered one of the most complex and interesting passages in all of the New Testament. So we want to take our time with it. So let's look at this one phrase at a time. The first phrase is this, in the beginning. Now, if you've ever read the Bible, or if you've ever attempted to read the Bible, this phrase might seem familiar. In fact, most people I know who are trying to read the Bible for the first time, they'll take the Bible and thinking it's just one book, they'll start at the beginning. And the beginning uh, starts exactly like this, in the beginning. Now, I don't always advise starting at the beginning of Genesis because you'll find God's story becomes very complicated and confusing very quickly. In fact, sometimes I'll advise people to start in the Gospel of John, which is kind of a new beginning of sorts and a great place to start if you've never studied the Bible. But in Genesis 1-1, this is what it says. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, this is intentional. John starts this way because he wants us to realize that in order to understand who Jesus is, we can't begin at the manger. We can't begin with the shepherds or the wise men. We can't begin in Bethlehem. We need to go all the way back to the beginning, all the way back to the beginning of beginnings. That's the only way we're going to understand who Jesus is because Jesus' story doesn't begin at Christmas. Now, the way we begin a story matters. For example, if you were to try to convince me that Jesus was a king, that you would focus on Jesus' birth and on Jesus' lineage. That's how royalty works. You're born into it. And so if you were trying to convince me that Jesus is king, you would need to show me that Jesus belongs to a royal line. Well, guess where Matthew and Mark begin? They start with Jesus' genealogy. They're like, look, Jesus is in the line of kings. He's royalty. He was born a king, and he's meant to be a king. But John, he starts somewhere else. He starts all the way back at the beginning. And that's what John does. In the beginning, in the beginning was the word. 
another word. This is a curious phrase. Um, the Greek word here is logos. The Greek word is logos. This is where we get the word, uh, the English word logic. But it, it basically means communication, words, reason. It's kind of like the communication of one's rationale, logos. Now, in the ancient world, this was a very common theme. And so for us, we read this and we're like, what's going on? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. What's, what is the word? And, but in the ancient world, they would have known exactly what John was talking about because this is a common word amongst the Stoics and some of the Greek philosophers of this time. And so this is actually one of the Jewish philosophers explaining the Logos of God right around. So I'm going to put up a quote here. It's not going to make any sense. We're going to read it, and then I'll explain it. Okay? So here's, here's the quote. And therefore, the city, when previously shadowed out in the mind of the man of architectural skill, had no external place, but was stamped solely in the mind of the workmen. So in the same manner, neither can the world, which existed in the ideas, have had any other local position except the divine reason, logos, which made them. Okay. Made about as much sense as I promised it would, right? Here's what's going on. I had to read it like 20 times. Everything we as humans have ever made, we first thought of. Architects, think, draw, prepare before things are built. So everything that is that we've made, the chair you're sitting in, the table that's in front of you, if you were one of the lucky few, everything that we have made as humans, we first, it was in someone's mind. They, they dreamed it up. And what this Jewish philosopher is saying is that the same is true for all of creation. That before it was ever created, God had to think about it. And he refers to that rationale, that thinking, that communication, that speaking things into existence as the logos. So in other words, in Genesis 1, going back to once again the beginning, God said, let there be light, and then there was it was light. We thought it. We spoke it. That is the logos. So before anything ever was, there was God and God's thoughts and God's words speaking things into existence. And so then he says in the next phrase, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. Now, this is what most people believed during this time. The logos of God, the rationale, the wisdom of God, was there when everything was created, this divine reason. And this is a common theme even in the Old Testament. In fact, you can read all about the divine wisdom of God in one of the books called Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 8 specifically talks about this divine wisdom. Wisdom in this passage is being personified, and wisdom is speaking, and you can see some of the echoes of this passage in John 1.1. 1, 1. Um, it says this, uh, when wisdom speaks on its own behalf, it says, I was formed long ages ago at the very beginning when the world came to be. I was there when he set the heavens in place, when he marked out the horizon on the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above and fixed securely the fountains of the deep, when he gave the sea its boundary, and when he marked out the foundations of the earth. Basically, when all, everything you've ever seen was created, wisdom claims to have been there and was a part of it. I was constantly at God's side. So this idea that wisdom or the logic of God was there in the beginning when everything was made. And this wasn't a new idea. This is just common knowledge, all the way back to the, the book of Proverbs. 
In the beginning was the word and the wisdom or logic of God, and this logic was with God. Now, the next phrase that he makes is actually where John gets a little radical. He says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. He was a part of creation, and the word was God. In other words, there's no way to separate the logic, reason, thoughts, wisdom of God from God. They are one and the same, the divine wisdom this divine reason, that force at work in the world to help bring about creation was there all along. As he says in verse three, through him all things were made, without him nothing was made that has been made. This word, this being, this divine reason is almost its own character, but also very much still God. And this, of course, is bringing, building up towards the reveal. And just a few verses further, we learn something else about this God, this logos. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, they tell, well, Matthew and Luke tell these beautiful Christmas story. And I don't know if, I love the Christmas story. The shepherd and the wise men and all that sort of stuff. This is what we get with John. That's the extent of the Christmas story in John. Very poetic, not confusing at all. You have to understand Greek Stoic philosophy in order to get it. And I'm just like, John, did we really need your gospel? I mean, can't we just keep things cute? Can't we just keep things as a story? Which is probably what some of you are thinking. Joe, can't you just tell a good story? <laughs> Why are we the word became flesh. God, this creative force who could speak light into existence, took on human form and lived amongst us. In other words, this little baby Jesus wasn't just born as a king or as a light to this dark world. Jesus is the very word of God. Or simply put, Jesus is God. And in Jesus, God dwelled amongst us. Friends, this is what the early church was debating at the Council of Nicaea. So in a sense, this is how Arius would translate John 1.1. Arius would say it like this, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was a God. That's how Arius, the the council, would have translated it. Not equal with God, just a God, kind of a God, sort of a God, but not really. When I became a, a pastor, um, I had this young couple in my church. I had this little church up in uh, Defiance, Ohio, and um, this young couple started coming to church, and they, they fell in love with God. I mean, they, and God did some amazing things in their life. In fact, they, were, they fell in so love with God that they decided they needed to do something about it. I don't know if you've reached that point yet, but they had to do something about it. And so they actually helped organize for our church and uh, for the community a community dinner that happened once a month. They just, they, they ran into some people who didn't have anywhere to eat and there was nothing to eat in this little town on Sundays. And so they organized this meal that's still going on to this day. I mean, that's how much they fell in love with God. And so they became very hungry to learn more about who God was. And so one day when someone knocked on on their door asking if they could do a Bible study with them, they were like, please come in and do a Bible study. Now, do you have any idea who might knock on a door and ask to do a Bible study with them? Well, 
they studied with this particular group of people for uh, weeks, and uh, um, and eventually, everything they had ever believed started to get very confusing. Because up to this point, they just kind of assumed Jesus was God, but this particular group of people was known as, is known as the Jehovah's Witness, and they had been studying the Bible with them, and they don't believe that Jesus is God. And all of a sudden, this young couple who had fallen in love with Jesus began to question everything. That's when they invited the pastor to dinner. Good action step, by the way, if you find yourself in a love dinner. Um, they invited me over, and we sat down, and we opened up the scriptures, and they told me their story, and they told me about how they had opened up the, the, you know, the scriptures with the, this, this really nice couple, the Jehovah's Witness, and they were reading the Jehovah's Witness translation of the Bible. And they showed me the passages that they were reading, and we looked at them and compared them to the Greek. And I, and I was reading their Bible, though, and I was, I was shocked because it was the Bible, but it also wasn't. They had changed a lot of stuff. And guess what passage they had been reading out of the New World Translation? John 1.1. 1, 1. And guess what the Jehovah's Witness translation reads? Well, it reads it like this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. Now, I'm not an expert on Jehovah's Witness theology, uh, but it's accepted by many that they basically are a version of Arius' teaching almost 2,000 years ago. Uh, they're this modern interpretation of that, that kind of teaching, that Jesus wasn't really God, that Jesus was a form of creative being, and that this teaching, this misrepresentation of Jesus is still very much alive in our day. What's worse is the Jehovah's Witness has taken this teaching and made it even worse. Now, I'm in no way trying to bash uh, Jehovah's Witness. In fact, I certainly don't advocate hitting them. In this regard, I do not think you should follow the example of Santa Claus. And if you remember anything from this message, which is up for debate, I challenge you this. Do not be like Santa Claus. Don't hit a Jehovah's Witness. But the truth is, this is a bad translation. And so that's all I knew. I sat down with this couple, and I pulled out my, my fancy seminary Greek Bible. You know, you can't get it anymore. You can't get a better translation than that. And I'm, I'm studying it with them. And here, friends, is the most literal translation possible of John 1.1. 1, 1. It's this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and God was the Word. That's, that, that is the most literal translation. So you don't have to agree with John, but you can't argue with him. John was teaching that the logos, the wisdom, the, the person of God, was God. And this is seen throughout the Gospel of John. In John 10, Jesus says it like this, I and the Father are one. Or in John 12, he says it like this, the one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me over and over again. John is painting this picture that Jesus is the same as God the Father. And so Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, they, they try to convince you that Jesus is king. John is trying to show us that Jesus isn't just king. Jesus is God. So I showed these passages to this couple, and um, I wasn't trying to convince them of anything. I just, we talked through it, and it's up to them to make their decision, which is the same for you all. What do you do with this information? For me, something in my life clicked into place when I realized that Jesus was God. 
when I realized that Jesus was more than just a good teacher, more than just a great leader, more than just this social revolutionary, which he was all of those things, but that Jesus was actually the manifestation of God in our midst, that Jesus was not just holy or divine, but was God, like with the big G, God. Now, for many, this is still a crazy thing to believe. It's hard to believe, but choosing to believe it, when I did, something happened to me. It was like I finally arrived home, and I finally came to the truth that was in this world. And it made everything else I know about Jesus that much better. So when we talk about how Jesus is, is king, if Jesus is also God, then that means his kingship is elevated to a divine level. He's a forever king. His kingdom never shuts down. His rule will never end. And when we talk about Jesus as being a light to the world, if Jesus is also God, then his light can reach every corner of the world, even into the depths of who you are, cutting you into the depths of your bone and marrow. There is no place you can go that can separate you from the person of Jesus, if Jesus is God. When we talk about how we were created, if Jesus is God... That means we were created by Jesus, the, the little child who's born in a manger, somehow in some mysterious world that I can't understand, also was there when you were formed in your mother's womb. When we talk about Jesus being a good teacher, if he's God, he's not just a good teacher, he's the best. And his ways are not just profound because they were really clever, they are profound because they represent the very heart of God. So if you have ever longed for God, if you have ever wanted to meet God, if you have ever wanted to know God, if you have ever wanted to talk to God, when Jesus came, you didn't have to go any further than Bethlehem. So if you have Jesus, you have God. And if you meet Jesus, you've met God. And if you talk to Jesus, you've talked to God. And if Jesus is God, you don't have to go any farther than Jesus. Not only that, but Jesus' death and resurrection, because he was God, is able to tear down the walls that separate us from God, which makes God fully accessible. So friends, we are without excuse. I met a lot of people I met a lot of people who are searching for something. Across the spectrum, rich and poor, hurting and healthy, uh, across the spectrum, and I've, I've met so many people who just wish they could know God more fully. If Jesus is God, all you need to know is Jesus, and you will know God fully. I'm gonna invite our band to come up. We're going to close with a very popular, uh, familiar Christmas hymn, O Come All Ye Faithful. And I, I really wanted to end with this hymn because there's this, the chorus is, O Come Let Us Adore Him. O Come Let Us Adore Him. And it's a beautiful hymn because it invites us to actually praise Jesus. To, to and if Jesus isn't God, then we probably shouldn't be praising him. But because Jesus is God, we can actually lift praise and come and adore him. So I want to invite you as we sing this song and as we uh, begin to move into our closing worship that you would take some time 
wrestle with this in your mind. And then if you're at that place, if you're willing, offer all of your praise to Jesus. Let's pray. God, we come before you and we thank you. We ask that you would come and that your light would come and speak into the depths of who we are and that there's nothing that can separate us from you, that you are ever present, that you promise to never leave us or forsake us. Lord, help us to come, get on, get on our knees, and, and give you the, the praise and glory that is due your name. It's your name we pray. Amen.